good morning. It felt good. I don't know about you. It felt good to kind of be back in a Bible class setting with with the young people and to gather together to do something that's different. I I I, I feel like, and I don't ever want to make too much of it, but there's something special about Bible class and about that setting and the ability because this is this is kind of one way. Sorry, uh, I get to stand up here and talk, and you sit there. That's how we do it, right? But but that is far more special because I get to sit and listen. Uh, not only does someone else maybe teaching, but even in teaching a class, I get to listen to uh, the bright minds of our our high school kids um, as they share their thoughts and ask their questions. And um, you know that interaction is really important. We, we need to be doing more of it, and I'm glad we're able to do a little bit more of it now. There's a funny thing that happens. If you've grown up in church or if you've been exposed to a church life uh, for a long time and been in Bible classes or been in worship services, there are certain words, certain phrases, little turns of phrase that that become very familiar to us. And we know what they mean because they're recognizable. And yet, they are terms that we almost never hear anywhere else. And when we hear them, though they are instantly recognizable, I think we would probably struggle to define them for anyone who hasn't experienced uh, a lifetime of learning as maybe we have with the Bible. In the verse that Travis just read, there is a phrase that jumps out at me when I read that. It's one of those words. It's actually two words, stumbling block. Now, I instantly recognize that word when I read it because I've heard it a million times. It's found many places in Scripture. Of course I know what stumbling block is. Of course I know what Jesus is saying. Except that that is the only time in my life I think I've ever heard that phrase used. It is not a part of our conversational lexicon. It is not something we use outside of a biblical context. And if someone were to ask me, what does it mean to be a stumbling block? I think I might struggle to define it. Because I only know what I understand from just hearing it over and over and over in my life. Putting that into practice and understanding something that is not widely used in our language is a bit of a challenge. Now, when you see stumbling block on that page, you are probably trying to think of times when you've ever heard that used outside of church. And you haven't, probably. I would bet most of us have. However, we do have a word in our language that we use regularly, that we hear often, that is the same word. Scandal. Do you know that? We talk about scandal all the time. We hear it in the news, politicians, celebrities. Uh, we hear about scandal. But that word, scandal, actually comes from the same Greek word, scandalos, that has been translated as stumbling block in our scripture. So Jesus is, is warning the apostles not to be a scandal to others. That's interesting. What is a scandal? You know, we hear about it, but what, what does that mean? Well, a scandal is oftentimes an action, a behavior, or an event that changes the trajectory of someone's life. When you think of uh, a, a politician who has such a, a promising future and, and, a, and, and people are really behind him and he has an agenda and then all of a sudden 
It's disrupted because he's gotten himself in some trouble. There's scandal. And now his agenda is not going to go forward. His career will not go forward. His trajectory has changed because of scandal. College football coaches, some of the best ones there have ever been, get those NCAA recruiting violations. They get hammered and death penalties and what not literal for you non-sports people. That's a term for they don't actually kill them. Uh, but the school programs are oftentimes changed forever, forever because of these mistakes, these scandals, these events that happen that change the trajectory of an otherwise promising life. And when we read about stumbling blocks in Scripture, what we're reading is Jesus encouraging us, don't be that thing and don't help make that thing change the trajectory of someone's life. In other parts of Scripture, this word is translated as snare. Uh, and very literally, that word scandalous was used to refer to a, a stick, a, a trap, the, the trigger for a trap even. And, and kind of the imagery used in the language is like a bent stick that sticks out onto a trail. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you're walking down a trail and you're minding your own business and all of a sudden you feel something pull you. And you look back and this branch hanging out, you didn't even see it, you weren't paying attention, all of a sudden snagged on your shirt and, and you're caught there. That is the literal imagery of the word that we translate as stumbling block. Don't be the thing in the path that holds someone back. Isn't that interesting? I, uh, I need you to bear with me because I left the Bible down here and I needed it up there because song leading sometimes confuses me as to which book I have in my hand. Anyway, I have the Bible now. Thank goodness. So this word that, that we find so common that is really uncommon in our day-to-day -day conversation has very a, a wide variety of meanings. And yet if we were to define it, we would look at this verse that we've just read in the book of Luke. And we would say, well, how, are we, how do we teach what a stumbling block is? How do we define what a stumbling block is? Let's look at that verse again in Luke chapter 17. He says to his disciples, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him to, be a, to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown to the sea than if he should offend one of these little ones. And some of your translations may say, if he causes one of these to sin. Ah, well, there we go. Causing one to sin. That's it, isn't it? That's the, that's, that's the definition. Here's the problem with that definition. If you look at the Greek of what we translated as causes one to sin, guess what the word is? Scandalous. If that's your definition, that would be the same as someone saying, what is a door? And I said, you know, it's a door. That's not a definition. You can't use the word you're defining to define the word. It's a paradox. This verse doesn't define for us the instruction that Jesus is giving. The people that heard it understood what he meant. We have to do a little digging to figure out what it is that Jesus is telling us what it is that the scripture is conveying to us about this word that is sometimes very difficult to understand. We'll look at a few other places where it's used. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, if you would go there. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 21. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus responded to him and says in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus uses the same word that we see in Luke chapter 17 to describe what Peter is doing. Because Peter does not understand the goal that God has in mind, the plan that Jesus is a part of, and he's rebuking Jesus and saying, don't you talk like that. Don't give up. Don't act like it's inevitable. They're going to put you to death. Stop that. And Jesus says, hmm, you don't get it. Your mind is on earthly things. Your mind is on man. Your mind is not on God. You don't have the proper focus. You don't have the proper perspective. And what you're saying to me is an attempt to impede God's progress and hold me back. Don't you think Jesus was ever tempted to say, I don't want to go through with it? I mean, look at the temptations that Satan threw at him in the early days of his ministry, right after his baptism. He threw at him all the things that a person could want and none of them involved him having to die for mankind. I think it absolutely crossed his mind. I think it absolutely would have been a temptation or a struggle to say, yes, I'm going to go through this. And he's even saying to his disciples, I'm going to go through this. And one of them is saying, no, 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 you're never going to do that. And Jesus has to say, what you're saying and your attitude is holding back the progress of God. You do not have the proper outlook. You need to get behind me. Because as long as you think that way, it's going to be harder for me to do what I need to do. But Jesus uses that word to describe one who impedes the progress of God. Chapter 8. Always fun to read Paul's letters. Always important to remember that we're reading someone else's mail. Okay, So sometimes we have to understand and put into context that he's dealing with a specific problem in Corinth. And this was a spe specific issue. They likely wrote Paul a letter and said, we can't agree on this. Please help us. Help us understand this. And Paul's writing back now. And he says in verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. What he's saying is you and I all know that if meat sacrificed to idols, that doesn't really mean anything because the idol's not real. There's no other God, so it's just meat. It's been cooked. Who cares what someone intended it to be? It's not that because that thing doesn't exist. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, in other words, objectively, someone is correct in this controversy. Someone's right and someone's wrong. Okay? 
But, oh, excuse me, I skipped a little. Um, verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and he means there are people who puff themselves up to be worshipped and admired, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sac sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. He said, There's not everybody's where you are yet. Some people are still stuck on this idea of idols and they haven't gotten that idea out of their system and it still bothers them. It still bothers them because they still see that as, as something that was offered to another god. And so when they partake of it, it hurts them. It damages them. It affects their soul. It affects their conscience. And so... You have to understand that. And in verse 8, Paul says, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Okay, now listen. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. He's saying you have every, every right in the liberty of your faith to eat this meat because we know that those idols are just hunks of metal or wood and there is no God for which this has been offered to. It doesn't, it, it doesn't affect your standing with the one true God. That group of people, objectively, Paul says, you're right about that issue. You're 100% right. But there are some who are new to the faith and who are new to the concept of the one true God and who are still struggling to get out of their psyche and out of their understanding and out of their way of life the idea of multiple gods and idols. And so when they partake of it, it has an impact on their soul. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you're right doesn't mean you get to do it your way. Why? He says, verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, they see you and they go, well, that guy knows what he's doing, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? You see, they're not quite ready. They don't quite have the strength of their conscience to partake in that without the guilt that comes from it. And the one who with wisdom knows there's nothing wrong with it is actually encouraging someone to violate their own conscience, Paul says. Verse 11, So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. That's, that doesn't describe our attitude most of the time. And, and it, honestly, it doesn't describe my attitude most of the time. There's right and there's wrong. And once you figure out which is which, you do the right one, you don't do the wrong one. There are so many times where being right is not all that matters. But being one with each other and with God is what truly matters. And Paul says... 
you are so gifted and blessed and, and you understand so much and you understand that this thing is okay for you, but others don't. And when they see you doing it, then they feel like it must be okay for them to do, but their conscience has not gotten to that point and you are literally causing them to sin and you yourself are sinning by not taking into consideration the conscience of others. Paul's dealing with a specific issue here. But he uses that word stumbling block to refer to one who causes confusion or someone who is in need. Someone who is still growing. Someone who is seeking more knowledge. When you cause confusion for them, you have become a stumbling block to their faith. Paul deals with a similar issue in Romans. You can go to Romans chapter 14. He's again talking about weak faith and strong faith, and he's talking about arguing over things that really don't matter. He's talking about arguing over what, what, is, what are called disputable matters or debatable matters or matters of conscience or opinion. And we've, we've read this before. I think this is fairly familiar territory. We have groups of people that want to keep these holy days and groups that don't, groups that want to eat meat and groups that don't. And they're arguing over who's right and who's wrong. And Paul says, right and wrong don't matter. Some of you may be right and some of you may be wrong, but your opinion is left at the door when you gather together with your brothers and sisters. Because here, the primary objective is that we are all one. I want to draw your attention to verse chapter, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 13. He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You notice the two words that are on opposite ends of the spectrum in that sentence? Don't pass judgment. Don't pass judgment on one another. Instead, don't be a stumbling block. Now, by the rules of grammar, that means that passing judgment on these matters represents a stumbling block. How is it that that's true? Verse 14 says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, he's saying, I don't think anything's wrong with any of this stuff you guys want to do. But if your brother or sister is distressed because of it, then you're no longer acting in love. Oh, now we start putting these words together, these adjectives. We put them together and we see judgment is a stumbling block and the opposite of that is what? Love. If you choose to be a stumbling block by your passing judgment on an issue, then you are a stumbling block and you have not love. Actually, uh, we struggle with this, I think, as Christians, the idea of judgment and love. Um, and it's something we need to get a better handle on. There's actually a book that I highly recommend. Uh, it will blow your mind. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the author at the moment. It's called Repenting of Religion. And it's not very long. And it, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, great philosopher and thinker, um, German, uh, from the 40s, early part of the 20th century. 
Um, but this book kind of takes some of his ideas and puts them in a little more understandable form uh, and proposes the idea that judgment is the opposite of love. It's really a fascinating book. And it's really hard to get your head around sometimes um, because we don't think of it that way. But here's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 14. By the way, the author doesn't give me any kind of kickback for promoting his book, so go ahead. He probably should. Uh, in Romans chapter 14, what Paul's talking about when he says no judgment, do not pass judgment, he's pointing out that the alternative to judgment is to not cause stumbling. Therefore, a stumbling block in this sense is the judgment that we pass on one another. What he's arguing against here is no gotcha statement. You guys need to stop debating and trying to catch one another in an error. You're arguing about days, you're arguing about meat and all of this, and you keep trying to just catch one another in a mistake. Stop doing that. Now, judgment is not the same as recognizing sin. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in this case, on these matters, Paul says, you need to stop trying to catch one another in an argument and start trying to love one another. Because if you truly love one another, you just quit doing the thing that was upsetting so many of your brothers and sisters. When you refuse to do that, you're saying that me being right is more important than us being together. And Paul is warning against that. He says, once you've gone there, you have completely shoved love out of your life. You no longer are motivated by love. You're driven by being right. And even as Paul admits that there is a right answer and a wrong answer to that specific question, he says that's not the point. Right and wrong does not get us closer to God. And why, he says, would you beat each other up over something so insignificant? It doesn't matter. Stop beating each other up over it. That's a stumbling block. A stumbling block is the judgment levied from brother to brother, sister to sister, and every other way that pulls us further away from God and more into needless argument. Do you see how that definition of the snare on the trail is far more enlightening now than just two words that mean nothing to us? Do you see how this, as we're walking down this road toward a, a path with God and something jumps out and grabs us, pulls us off course, this scandal that we talk about, you see how we can participate in that or we can ease that that's what scripture is calling don't be a part of the problem now let's look at the context though okay, back to Luke chapter 17 back to what Jesus is saying context or a text without a context is a pretext so we need to know what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it. now we start there in the first verse of chapter 17 with this instruction to not be a stumbling block but where did that come from because it says he turns to his disciples and he says this. Well, what happened before that? He's telling a parable in the previous chapter. He's telling a parable of which we call the rich man and Lazarus. And you can read that, but the basic story is that there's a rich man and there's this very modest, meager, poor man named Lazarus. They both die. The beggar goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. And they're talking to one another. Or they're, they're talking through the two places. And the rich man is crying out in agony, in this fire. And he says, I can't take this. Please 
please will you save me? He's talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, okay, if you can't save me, would you just at least send Lazarus down here and, 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 and dip his finger in water and put some on my tongue? That's how bad it is. I just want to drop. Abraham says, no, we can't do that. And, and the rich man says, okay, fine. Well, could you please let me out of here or send someone back to my family because I've got all these brothers and sisters and they don't know God and somebody needs to tell them to stay out of hell. Abraham says, I can't do it. He says, if they haven't listened already, they're not going to listen. And Jesus, in the aftermath of that statement, turns to his disciples and says, you need to make sure that you're not the reason someone misses heaven. You need to make sure you're not the reason someone is pulled off track. You need to make sure you're not the reason that someone diverts from their trajectory. Don't be that stumbling block. In fact, he says those who are, are better off dead. It'd be better if you were just dead. You would do less damage that way. I don't recall a whole lot of suggestions of death being a better alternative from Christ. But he thought it serious enough to say this. And we have, because of how words work, we have made it this phrase stumbling block. And that just sounds like, hey, don't cause anybody to sin. And that is what it says, except cause someone to sin is the same word. It's more than just not causing someone to sin. It's more than just not encouraging bad behavior. It's helping one another along the journey of a faithful life. Not being a stumbling block is not a passive thing. You can think of it as passive. There, there is a difference between moving out of someone's way and walking with them and making sure they get where they're going. And being, not being a stumbling block is the walking with. Jesus isn't saying just get out of the way. He's saying it is all of us collectively who are responsible for all of us collectively succeeding on making it down that path and finishing our journey. And whether you are the snare that reaches out and grabs someone by the sleeve, or whether you just see it and don't say anything, Jesus says, you need to go through that trail and you need to cut those down. This is an active call to faithfulness and to assist one another. Now what does Jesus say, though, following this encouragement in Luke? Look at what he says is the is something we ought to consider. He says, verse 3, So be on guard, watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, here's this fun word, rebuke. That's what I was here for. Man, I'm ready to do some rebuking, right? That's what we're always excited about. Okay, okay, we're not going to be a stumbling block. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to get out. Okay, great. But what if they do something wrong? Ooh, I can't wait to rebuke somebody. Do you know what rebuke means? We think of it as correction. And yes, that is part of rebuke. It is correcting. But the word rebuke also implies an esteem. Esteem. The word rebuke implies an elevation in esteem 
and a correction. In other words, it is a correction that we make with love and because we value someone. It's not a correction we make because someone is lower than us or because we think less of them. It is a correction you make in an honorable fashion in order to correct someone that you hold in high esteem and in love because you don't want to see them go that way because you don't want to see them hurt you rebuke them we don't think of rebuke with that high esteem but Jesus says not only are you to clear the path and to not be a stumbling block and to not be a snare and to help them avoid the scandal that will change their trajectory but you also when you see the mistakes and when they make the mistakes you love them enough to not let them miss heaven Love them enough to correct them, but love them in your correction. There is a difference in how we think of rebuke and how that word actually is used. In the previous century, middle portion of that century, uh, there were a lot of Christian people in our own, our own faith tradition, the Churches of Christ, that had a lot of different publications and periodicals that they would send out. And they would tell you which preachers were wrong, which ones needed to be ignored, which churches needed to be disfellowshipped. These are some big names in our history. Boye Wallace, David Lipscomb, and they're not the only ones. But there were some people that said some very harsh things, very judgmental things about others in our own fellowship. And when confronted on the divisiveness of their language, they would always respond, well, we're doing it out of love. Doing it because we care. Folks, judgment and love are opposites of one another according to scripture that we've already read. Paul says, stop judging because when you do that, you're not loving. When Jesus tells us not to be a stumbling block, that means more than just not helping someone to sin. It means helping them to avoid their sin and helping them to avoid being tripped up in their walk. Because he does say, hey, sins are going to come. Bad things are going to come. Offenses, that's the word that, that is more literal there, scandal is going to come. Don't be the reason for it. Do everything you can to help someone avoid it. Don't stand in the way of God's progress. And then he says, when those mistakes come, when those snares, when those traps, when those scandals arise, with love and high esteem, forgive the one who committed the offense. Help them in correcting their course and walk with them and clear their path. That's a far more active consideration of what it means to not be a stumbling block. And look how he ends the, those later verses there when he says to rebuke. He says, and even if they keep doing it, you keep forgiving them. No question. No question, no preconditions. If they keep doing it, you keep forgiving them. Why? Because God does not want us to make heaven harder than it has to be. Do not make salvation harder than it should be. Go with God 
walk the path and be one who clears it, not one who crowds it. Because that is the journey we are all on. And this word seems like a very simple word, and it might be if you've grown up hearing it. If you've never heard it before, it's actually rather confusing and a bit of an anachronism. It's important that we understand what these things mean, what they mean to us today, and what they would have meant to those who heard it then. But we are called to do more than just walk the path ourselves or wish well the others who are on it. We have a responsibility to make sure we all get to the end. We have a duty to make sure that we are all connected and, and, and on, on one, speaking with one voice and walking with one purpose as we do that. This morning, if you need prayer or encouragement on your journey, our arms are open here. And, uh, we want to be people who are driven by love and who are driven by compassion and who are driven to help us reach the end of that journey and to clear that path. If we can clear that path for you at all this morning, we're going to do that this morning as we stand and sing together. I have to go get my book now. Feel at the cross.